I think this is the first time in a while that I can probably pretty confidently say that this is a great day for America. Uh, probably in almost two years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Since or however long it's been since since the this orange, whole Trump thing, since the orange man descended the escalator. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is not like some uh, insider knowledge that like uh, forty five is no longer president. Uh, but the positive news is that Darth, um, I, th- um, I think the Bay Area's uh, favorite anonymous Twitter person, uh, is back from hibernation. I mean, I would I would go beyond just the Bay Area. I, I would argue perhaps the the country's favorite anonymous Twitter person. Yeah, he he seems still criminally uh, criminally underfollowed, but um, yeah, yeah, definitely. He's he's a very very good mix. If people don't already know, mix of kind of technology. Like insider Bay Area stuff, uh, dogs, of course, and um, politics, which I think is probably why he got burnt out and exhausted and had to um, go into hibernation for a little bit. But it's good to have him back. I think, you know, it, it was about his time to come back. I think these hibernations in the past have been kind of in that six to eight week time frame. And I think he, he went in hibernation, what, kind of right after the inauguration or right thereabouts maybe actually maybe it was before the right after the election i guess a couple weeks after the election i checked and i think he checked out on november 21st so like right when trump got elected i assumed it was going to be almost immediate because like those last two months of the election cycle like he went (laughs) like i don't know if he ever slept like just like (laughs) the the photoshops and the like all of it was just uh timely and like being very valuable but like i just have no idea how that person how that person does it and, and somehow probably manages to hold a job. Um, actually, that is that is one thing I wonder about. Like, what does that person do where he has that much time to to sit in Photoshop all day? Because it's happening mostly during the workday. Yeah, yeah. There, there was that one photo a year ago, year and a half ago. That was like a late late Friday night where he like he had taken a picture in what looked like kind of a generic office space, but. But yeah, you're totally right where a lot of the the posts happen, you know, during the day. And it's not like I would say like an individual post takes 30 minutes or something to put together. But, you know, I think 10 to 15 minutes for some of that Photoshop stuff is probably a, you know, a pretty conservative estimate. And he's, you know, cranking out multiple of those per day. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you, kind of, you kind of wonder. Yeah. So I won't I won't question it too much. I'm I'm very happy he's back, and it's going to be maybe I'll be a little less fearful about checking uh, Twitter now. He's he's going to be a consistent um, kind of shining light throughout the day in what is otherwise a a dark period. Yeah, because on, on that note, I have been checking Twitter. I think a little less frequently because it seems it's not that I'm trying to escape the news, but it just seems like. So much of Twitter these days is just whatever the controversy of the day is, and then just kind of this cluster of kind of like, injustifiably, like this like left wing outrage and stuff. And I just, it just, it becomes exhausting after a while. I know what you mean, but I feel like I'm actually more, I'm more plugged in. I think I check Twitter more often, and I definitely listen to quite a bit more on the political side with my podcasts now. So that makes sense. I mean, and, and I, I do as well, but I, it just feels like, I don't know. I know what you mean. It, I think exhausting is, is the right word. Yeah. I keep uh, thinking I want to like uh, start investing in Twitter lists 
or something to kind of like segment out like whenever I want to check this kind of stuff and don't necessarily want a whole um, big side order of politics. But the the third party clients don't support that kind of stuff, do they? Uh, Tweetbot does. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I always just whenever somebody talks about like a special feature in Twitter, I always I just immediately assume that I'm not going to be able to use it in Tweetbot, which is which is no knock on Tweetbot, of course, but yeah. Um, yeah, like most like Twitter polls and a whole bunch of the other stuff. No, those legitimately do not have any type of third party um, API access support. So, no, that's yeah, that's not the, the the Twitter the Twitter poll thing. Though I'm in a lot of ways, I'm glad that Tweetbot doesn't support that. <laughs> I polled, polls on Twitter is kind of annoying. What actually? And to round to round this part out, um, have you ever do you ever use any of the native Twitter? products either on ipad ios mac or on the browser no i'm exclusively tweetbot across mac os and ios so that's really smart because i think we've talked about this in the past but i'm an idiot and i will frequently inside the browser actually navigate to twitter.com and use the web interface like a surprising amount during the day and the advertising inside of twitter is is almost unbearable like the sponsored tweets are, or the promoted tweets are like every fifth item, and they're not relevant and they're not good. So I don't know how regular, I don't know how people do it. Let's test this here. Yeah, I'm not even when I go to Twitter.com. I'm not <laughs> You're not even, even logged in. I'm not even logged in. <laughs> what is this? Does it, is it still like the cryptic? The main page says like see what's happening, and it's just like a bunch of like landscape shots. What is it here? It's just like because that's that's the problem. Like where Twitter hasn't like for yeah, it's just like it's just like what yeah, what's happening, and then and then for some reason I'm being shown tweets like horizontally at the top. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I don't so know. It's this is a problem because they haven't figured out in ten years how to describe the product, and it it sounds like from like the first like when somebody's visiting for the very first time, they're being shown how the product works in exactly the way it doesn't work. Like it's a timeline view. Why would it be horizontal? You know the the conversation around Twitter is is so strange because, like, I I totally understand just about all the negative things that are said, particularly about the their you know the business side of things. Mm-hmm. But it it's now consistently for the last couple of years been my most used app slash service. I mean. I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's like, I guess there's probably not a way like on iOS to log how much time you're in each app. But if that were possible, I I would have to imagine that Tweetbot would be, you know, dozens and dozens of hours ahead of anything else on my phone. Well, sure. But you also have to think that you are using a, you're a, you're a very small segment of, of the user base that uses a third party client that sees zero advertising. So in terms of like your um like monetary value to Twitter it's it's uh, non-existent. No, I know, but I guess the, that my point is that it's just it's weird that it's a product that's so universally criticized yet it's also extraordinarily popular both for a pretty large, you know, subset of people and just, you know, by me personally. A weird a weird weird contrast. It is and a lot of people like speak about it like as though like yeah maybe they're just never going to figure out the monetization thing but then like twitter just kind of is a public utility now in a sense and and that's that's tricky of how that cuz it can't twitter can't go away like right i mean it, 
I mean, you know, unfortunately, well, unfortunately or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you want to take this. I mean, especially in light of, of the last couple of years and this last presidential cycle, I mean, Twitter really has become a huge part of, you know, not just the kind of the T circles like it used to be, but I mean, really, and, and, and not even just like pop culture, but really our politics. Yeah. But no, that's what I'm saying. Like, even if Twitter somehow like just fails, like as a business, I assume that they just have to get purchased by somebody and just, it just runs. Yeah. I mean, they just, they, some, some Google like company comes and just throws it on a HP pavilion and puts it in a closet somewhere. Yeah. Does they, does HP still make the pavilion? Is that, is that their, is that their naming convention still, or have they, have they moved on? I think they do, but but the problem with HP is they've bought so many brands. So they have like the HP, um, so they have the Elite Book, and then they bought like whoever's not Alienware. Like, what was the other gaming PC brand? Uh, besides Alienware, uh, it's Envy. So they have. Oh like this, yeah, yeah. So they have computers that are called like the HP Envy. They still somehow use the Compaq brand name, so they have HP Compaq computers. Like their thing makes no sense. Like the most prized possession that that company had was the HP Pavilion, like the physical location, and we've we've spoken at length about why that why that is the way it is. But so, so I I I went to HP.com because I was actually kind of curious, like what that would even be, just with all the different reorgs and things that they've had. And the the homepage is actually at first pretty intuitively laid out, where it's. Laptops and tablets, desktops, printers, ink and toner, displays and accessories, business solutions, and support. So those categories generally, I think, make sense. And it's kind of nice they still just have them all on one landing well, page. hold on. I, I disagree because I just went there and 90% of the page is something called the wolf. Well, and what, yeah, what the hell is you have You have to kind of ignore that two-thirds, yeah, well, no, but what, what screen is H- video. What is HP Studios? I, I don't know. See, you're 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 derailing my point, though. So that so, so those those sections is, are fine. Is HP a film company? That's they, I think th- maybe. If I didn't know anything about what HP did, I would think they're like Paramount Pictures or something. They they print out they print out film scripts and all their fine printers now. Um, but any anyway, so what I was curious about also was when you kind of go into like the computers that that they have now sort of like what what do they sell now and how do they like market these things what does immersive mean right so yeah so under laptops <laughs> and tablets your your next steps are choosing between business premium because evidently their business products and all these other products aren't premium gaming standard laptops feel sorry for the people who have to get stuck with a standard laptop <laughs> workstations which in the context of a laptop and tablet i don't even know what a like a workstation would be convertibles and detachables which again not really sure what a like a detachable is uh tablets and then three in one not not two in one what's what's a three in one let's go into this here this is the hp elite 
Get simple and seamless access to the people, apps, and data you care about without the burden of switching devices with the HP Elite X3, the world's first built-for-business 3-in-1 device that combines PC power and productivity with premium smartphone capabilities in a sleek and secure device that can dock when you need to work big. Oh, so this is like that, um, wasn't there like an Android phone from years ago that tried to do this? Yes, this came up on Upgrade this week. It was called the Motorola Atrix, yeah. and Mike loved it. <laughs> of course he did. So hold on. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But also, so is this, if I'm getting this right, is this just a shitty Windows phone that becomes a laptop that, that becomes a desktop? Yeah, this is that Axiom thing, but instead of Android, it's Windows Phone. Yeah. So th- this is silly, but also I want to know, what if I am a premium gaming business that wants a workstation laptop? All right, we we got to get off this because we have two, we have, we've had two busy weeks. Um, so I want to go back. This whole thing started where we were talking about what does Twitter dot com look, and somehow we're at HP. Yeah, well that 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 just happens. So let's just get back in, into the meat of things. So you, did you did you drop your gigantic phone? What happened? <sighs> yeah. So. I mean, first, I should preface this by saying that I don't think the drop was related to the size of the phone, so I'm not going to blame this on the fact that I that I have a plus. And I, I I've think actually one of those things that science can't disprove. <laughs> and I feel like I've this exact same drop has happened with many non-plus phones that I've had in the past. I I just got really unlucky this time. So I was I was getting you'll, you'll appreciate this part. I was getting out of an Uber, and. Um, it was raining, so I was kind of, um, you know, fumbling around with my umbrella, and I had I had had my phone out, you know, right before the Uber. Um, I was just taking it home, so right before I got home, and I had thought that I put it in my pocket, like all the way, you know, like I would would normally do, but I guess I didn't quite, you know, didn't quite get it all the way in the pocket, and so when I stood up to get out of the Uber, it it kind of flew out and then landed on the sidewalk and it like it didn't really fall from that high but you could sort of tell right away that it made a, a kind of a startlingly startlingly loud sound so i'm like oh this is probably not good but the uh the screen was fine and the phone was working fine but the issue was that all along the side that it had fallen on were these really big dents <clears throat> that were kind of visually not very nice, but then also they were really sharp, like to the point where as soon as I got into the apartment, I had to put a case on as to not like cut my fingers. It was pretty bad. Is that an Apple carable event? So, um, you know, in all the years I've um I've had iPhones, I've never never had to put Apple Care um, or even like the manufacturer warranty to use because the only the only problem that I've ever had with an iPhone was and I think I'm sure we talked about this on the show was all of a sudden one morning I woke up and there was just a line down the middle of my screen but I think if I remember correctly that was within just the standard return policy so even if they weren't able to fix it I like um, they probably could have just swapped it out or whatever uh, but now being on the iPhone upgrade program Apple Care is included in that price. And so this was sort of my my first chance to use that, um, which I actually didn't immediately think about. My first thought was to get one of those. Um, I can't think of the name of them again now, but there's this company that makes this really like ultra thin iPhone case that people really like. 
I can't I can't think of what what the name of it is. But anyway, that that's the route that I originally thought about going. But then I thought, well, you know, I've got Apple Care. Like I wonder like I wonder what that would do because <clears throat> I know that it, it covers accidental damage. Um, and, you know, there's an Apple store pretty close by. So I made an appointment for the next day and literally just walked in and said, hey, you know, dropped my phone yesterday. It works fine, but it's, it's got these like really sharp dents along the side. So like I just kind of wanted to see, you know, like what my options were considering that I have Apple Care. And the immediate response is, well, you know, we've um, we can do a complete phone replacement for ninety nine bucks. And as long as we have it in stock, we'll be able to get that to you today. And, you know, you'll be on your way. And sure enough, they did. And literally within <clears throat> 15 minutes and 100 bucks later, I was out the out the door with a, with a new iPhone. Or I guess it's probably a refurbished iPhone. That's like the box that it came out of seemed to indicate that it was probably refurbished. But um, but pretty great that, you know, for 100 bucks, I could completely swap the phone out. And then the other nice thing, too, as was as I've complained about on the show, that phone had a huge scratch on the screen. So kind of an added <laughs> an added bonus of all this was that you know my new phone now doesn't have that scratch. Um so yeah, pretty uh pretty great. Um the only hiccup in the process actually and you'll you'll appreciate this part of the story too was that you know I I've, I've been a long time proponent of iCloud backups. But I do, you know, just to cover my bases whenever I upgrade my iPhone um, and in this case, I, I, I kind of thought that there was a possibility I'd get a new phone. So I kind of went into it assuming that's what would happen, even though I wasn't sure. Um, whenever I'm in a situation like that, I'll, I'll do the iCloud backup, but then I'll also connect my phone to the computer and do an iTunes backup. And sure enough, when I got home, I, I did the iCloud backup. I just couldn't, the, 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 the restore just wouldn't complete. It would just sit on, um, one of the. I forget if it was one of the login screens or just one of the Apple with the little loading bar underneath its screens. I forget exactly what it was, but like almost two hours went by and it just wasn't making any progress. And so I had to to kind of force a reboot on it and then ended up connecting it to, to iTunes and just restoring the backup that way. Wait, so uh, it was the iCloud backup that was failing or the I, or sorry, the iTunes restore or the iCloud restore? The iCloud restore. Got it. Okay. So, you know, huge, huge kudos to Apple for the way that the the swapping of the phone worked. I could not have been more impressed with that whole process. That was great. Um, but kind of a bummer with the, the, the recovery piece. It's kind of making me think that going forward, I might, I might stick with the, the iTunes backups, which I know, you know, you've always been a big proponent of. Yeah, as as and we'll get into later as an, as an old school crotchety old Mac user. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- one question though that um, did you proactively remember to like deal with your watch first, or how'd that go? I did. Yeah. So I, um, I, um, well, actually, I mean, I didn't really even proactively do it. I when I got to the store and then they told me that well, we can just go ahead and swap the phone out for you. Um, I just was like, oh, well, should I go ahead and unpair my watch from the phone? And so that's what I did. So I just, I just it. did it like right there in the store. Okay. It's not, it's really not mission critical if you, if you forget to do that though, because it's my understanding that the, your watch backups are just part of the iPhone backups. So I think the well, watch, I, for, I forgot something goes wrong if you don't do it. 
Huh. Like, isn't there an issue where like you can't overwrite the backup of your phone without going through a bunch of hoops if you don't unpair it? I think all you have to do is just go to the. Um, so I think like so when you go to the watch and you go into settings and you go let's see this here. The settings app has to load. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> general about. Or maybe not about, but somewhere in here, I think. Yeah, you can you can reset the watch from in this general setting. So I think you just have to go in and do that before you can then pair it to the phone. So wait, but you're you're talking about on the watch directly, right? Yeah. But then if you but if you don't have the original phone in hand anymore, the watch will no longer unlock, right? Well, no, you just unlock it with you just unlock it with your passcode. Oh, I guess because I have like uh, it syncs to like the enterprise outlook thing on my watch where I'm not allowed to have a four digit code. I think that's where I would get screwed. You can't have a four digit code on your watch. No, the only way it'll unlock is if I fingerprint unlock my phone. Oh, I didn't even I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah, like. If your Microsoft Outlook profile uh, specifies that you have to have like eight characters and special characters and all that nonsense, it disallows an Apple Watch passcode because your mail gets mirrored to the f- to the watch. Huh. Yeah. So okay, I think that that's the situation where you get kind of probably. Yeah, I, I I didn't know that was a thing. Hmm. Well, I'm glad it ended well. Yeah, and... I'm su- super impressed. I keep forgetting. Do you have matte black or jet black? I've got the matte black. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. And while you were waiting for the for the repair, did you play with the the touch bar MacBook Pro a little bit? Um, I didn't this trip, although I, I've been back once or twice and have, have messed around with it. Um I mean yeah, it's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I I think I really if I were to ever upgrade to one of those machines, I, I think one of the things I really would miss the most is MagSafe. Yeah, it has it has a ton of trade-offs, but MagSafe is a big one. And also, I think the problem with that computer is also that Touch ID would be very, very nice on it. But the fact that if, you, if you're somebody who has a desktop Mac, it would be infuriating that it doesn't have it. Right. To the point where you wouldn't even want to use it. Well, and that's, um, I mean, maybe we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about my increased use of the Mac recently but you know that's where um the apple watch feature i think is really great because that that experience is consistent across you know all macs hmm okay well actually let's 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 as you would say parlay right into that uh-huh yeah um so yeah you've changed jobs recently i have and uh they allow use of macs yeah, they, so that means that was in fact my only option yeah <laughs> oh they're that's that's fantastic. Yeah, no, I know. I know. So yeah, so that means that you are becoming uh much more of an a uh, full-time Mac guy. So, and that's led to a couple of um I don't know, you've been getting more into the productivity stuff. You've uh taken on the idea of getting an ergonomic keyboard. So yeah, let, let's let's hear what's new with you and the Mac. Well, so you know, I I guess in in so I so let's let's go way back in time. So before, and we've probably talked about some of this on the show, but whatever. So before junior year of college, I had never owned a Mac. <laughs> We're going way back. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, way, way back. And, you know, I had used Macs 
here and there. And of course, you know, had some experience working on them at Best Buy, but had never, you know, had one myself. And so junior year, end of junior year of college, bought my first MacBook Pro, totally tricked out 15 inch MacBook Pro. I think it was kind of top of the line at the time. And then, you know, used that as my primary machine through that last year of college. And then, you know, kept it for a while as my personal computer. But, you know, even that one year in college, I had a Windows desktop, which, which are, I, you know, I think I did most of like my, um, like reports and stuff I would, I would still do cause I was comfortable with, with word on, on windows. So, you know, I, I would use the, the Mac quite a bit, but it'd be a stretch to say that it was my primary machine. I kind of split my time still with windows. And then my first two jobs out of college, I had windows based laptops. So again, had a personal Mac for most of that time. And I did end up selling that original Mac, but then, you know, as has been well documented on the show, we both bought new MacBook Pros. Uh, what was that in 2015? But again, yeah, it's kind of split my time between that and, and Windows. And actually, because of work, ended up spending far more time on Windows these past six years or so. But, you know, now with this new job, I'm I'm on you know, on a Mac kind of all day, every day for the first time ever, really, I guess. I mean, I literally haven't even turned on my Windows machine since I started this new job. So first full-time Mac user, I suppose. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, still still kind of a a lot to get used to, (laughs) a lot of like Windows habits to break, but... Yeah. You know, what I was doing for a while at my last job was I, I was bringing my MacBook Pro to the office. So I had kind of like both laptops on my desk. Because, I mean, the thing is with, with, the, with the Mac for a while now, you know, it, it between Fantastical, OmniFocus, and <clears throat> I would include this with those two, you know, iMessages on, on the Mac you know, those three things are a huge part of, of my day to day. And so, you know, I kind of had to have that Mac there with me to be able to, you know, keep up with all that stuff throughout the day. And so having that now just on one machine and, you know, only, only using one machine, um, at a time is, is really nice. And just an ancillary question about the new job. Um, do you have to have a separate work machine or are you allowed to use your personal? I mean, they, they gave me, they gave me a work machine. So, and it's, it's literally exactly the same MacBook Pro that you and I have. So I, I basically now just have two identical Macs, which is, which is kind of a weird spot. Like I'm, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with my personal Mac, which is the one that I'm, that I'm recording on now. I mean, I, I've got it in that, that nice hinge dock here on my desk at home. So I, I could just leave it there and it, it basically it'll just become kind of a desktop most of the time but it, it it is a little duplicative oh so you're using the work machine but you've put most of your personal data on it in oh, terms of like omnifocus sync yeah, and icloud stuff yeah yeah so got it so on the work machine i'm logged into my personal icloud account logged into my personal omnifocus account and then with one password which we should get a lot more into i've got my you know i've got both the the work one password team account and I've got my personal account. Wow, this is a very progressive workplace. I like this. Oh, it, it's it's awesome. Yeah, I mean we 
we use one password we use dropbox um we use just the google the google suite for you know email and all that stuff calendar that's it's 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 great nice um so yeah yeah not not really sure what i'm gonna do with my personal mac i mean i guess i guess i'll just keep it like it it, i guess it it, it, again it it is kind of nice just having it docked here always connected to the monitor at home um and i don't yeah i I don't really think selling it would be worthwhile although i guess maybe i could look into that but no, and it's it's nice to have just in case you ever do need to like remote desktop into it if there's like a um a personal resource you need from your de- uh, from your work Mac. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um I mean also it would be really great just to replace it with an iMac at some point. <laughs> but um Hey, I'm I'm on board with this. Yeah, but so we'll we'll see what happens with the iMac this year, maybe that'll like if I if I could, you know, play with some numbers and say like, well, if I, you know, cuz in the past, right, when I thought about an iMac selling my current macbook pro has never really been part of that equation um but you know now that that has become a much more realistic possibility i could sort of offset some of the cost of that imac with that i I don't know we'll see yeah um but yeah no i guess the the thing i wanted to um again as as you would say that i say parlay this into um to one password, which I, I briefly mentioned a minute ago. So that's been one of the more interesting parts about switching to um, Max full time now. And I guess also working for an employer that uses one password. So so we use one password for teams, which involves, you know, an account similar to their one password personal accounts, which they rolled out a few months back. But the interesting part was that, so I, I had not yet migrated over. So I was still using just the Dropbox sync. Hmm. Um, had kind of had it on my list for a while to move over to the personal account. Like I had no reservations about doing that. And a lot of the features sounded really nice. I just, just hadn't gotten around to it. But it turns out that you, in a single instance of 1Password, you can't combine both 1Password for Teams and having just a just a personal vault saved on um, your computer or being synced through dropbox like you you can have multiple vaults but they have to all be a part of either a personal account or a team account or a family account so if i wanted to have access to both my work one password vaults and my personal one password vault i had to migrate that desk the dropbox um, version to the one password personal account um which i did and it was fine it was fairly fairly straightforward to to migrate all my existing passwords although i <laughs> i made like four backups of that vault before um before i did that it's like mm-hmm. i got really really nervous about that and then you know quadruple checked that everything migrated over properly before getting rid of the old vault um, cause that, that would be pretty devastating, right? If that, if that went wrong, sure. That'd be pretty yeah. bad. So, um, was very careful about doing that, but, um, but it ended up working great and it's, it's really cool. Um, you know, the way that one password handles the multiple accounts and multiple vaults is really seamless. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the big thing is in the, 
the Chrome extension, and I, you know, I assume the Safari and all the other web browser extensions all work the same, is, you know, in a lot of ways, you just would never know that you had multiple vaults because whenever you go to a page that's got your 1Password um, account associated with it, you know, if you just have a personal account or if you just have a work account, that'll show up. Or if you're on a page where you've got both a work account and a personal account, you just you have the option of logging into either one. So it's mm-hmm. it's really, really slick. Cool. So yeah, so what other changes have you made? How's how's your uh, Microsoft sculpt going? <laughs> um, it seems like you were fighting with that for a little bit. Well, so I mean so I've, this is only it's only been two days. So I started using that um at your recommendation and the wire cutter's recommendation. Um, started using that yesterday. I think, I think I'm going to eventually like it, but I currently do not. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm really bad at typing on it right now. So it's, it's frustrating because I'm just, I'm just not typing very well on it, simply put. And it's just, it still just feels really awkward. Yeah, it, it'll, it'll fix itself. I mean, you, you, you said just a couple of days, but I mean, you know, do you remember like how long it took for you to, to get comfortable with it? A couple of days. I mean, <laughs> the biggest difference is just that it'll be fine. Um, for me, the biggest adjustment was just kind of having to do like the remapping stuff and just the keys being in, like, cause you know how, um, on windows machines, like whatever the windows button is, is like just abnormally big. Um, so that was a little bit annoying, but no, like the split and, and the, the different slope of the keys and that kind of stuff, like you, you get used to it. You'll be fine. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think I'm going to eventually like it, but right now I'm still just kind of in that, that learning mode. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm here now working just on my regular Mac, um, keyboard, the, the wireless one that I've got and it's. It's great. <laughs> it's just like I just feel so much comfortable on it because I've, I've been typing on this keyboard for. I mean, it, this is the same keyboard as the one that comes on the on the MacBook Pro. So I mean, I've, I've been typing on this keyboard for like almost seven years now. So sure, sure. Um. So yeah. But I mean, I, I think yeah, I, I think I think I'll get used to that. Um. I guess so. I mean, the other the other really big change for for me specifically is now, um, you know, Office on the Mac, because you mm-hmm. know my my particular profession, which we, I guess we've alluded to what that is in the past, but we we don't need to get into that specifically. But we'll just we'll say that I'm I'm a heavy user of Microsoft Excel, so you can do with that what you will. And you know, I I think as you've talked about, and just as is the general kind of observation the you know office suite um on the mac i think probably much to the chagrin of a lot of mac users has has become a lot more consistent with the windows version in terms mm-hmm. of the ui and just really just the way that it works in a lot of ways it's it's kind of just a windows app sort of in a mac os wrapper um uh, yeah i mean at, at yeah. a at like a, a very basic kind of cynical take i think would be that um yeah. which you know for me actually is sort of a good thing because it's it's made it's made the transition a little bit easier um but it's you know the the big thing and it's really honestly the the biggest hurdle why 
I didn't even ever really bother pushing to use a Mac at any of my previous jobs. I think like my previous job, I might've been able to to push for that. But one of the reasons I wasn't super motivated to do so was because I really didn't want to have to relearn keyboard shortcuts. <laughs> well, I mean, they really become in Excel. No, I know. They become a yeah. huge part of your workflow. Yeah. But, you know, now I, I'm just, you know... In my new role, I'm at least for a while, I'm going to be a little less dependent on that for a while. But, you know, over time, I'm just going to have to really dedicate myself to relearning all that stuff. And that's that's just going to be, you know, it is what it is. But um, yeah. I mean, the keyboard shortcuts are almost exactly the same. It's just that you'll swap um, control and command in a, a little bit. And some of the F keys might be different, but yeah, well, and some of the <clears throat> just like the a lot of the keyboard shortcuts with how you access like things that you have to drill a couple layers into the toolbar on are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and one also, like I had some macros set up um, on my Windows machine. So I've got to figure out how to now do that on the Mac side. Mm -hmm. Things like that. But um, but I mean, overall, it's it's actually not, not really been as difficult of a transition as I thought. Um, my biggest thing though still is it, it just, Excel just does, it just doesn't, run as well on the mac as it does in windows just everything is just a half beat slower just things like moving from cell to cell is just it's just it's just a half beat slower which has always been the thing that's driven me nuts about office on the mac and you know i'll just have to get used to it that's true because i'm not sure which version of excel you were running at your previous job but like excel 2013 is is pretty damn near perfect and uh, Excel 2016 on the Mac or whatever it is, it it is like yeah, just like an eighth of a second, like too like slow to respond in certain ways, and it, that that is jarring and annoying. Well, I think so. Actually, yeah. So in in defense of the Mac version, so we at my previous job had initially upgraded from 2010 to 2013, but we're having a ton of trouble on 2013 with larger spreadsheets just either mm. crashing or being super slow to do basic tasks. And so we actually ended up, uh, at least on the finance side, we ended up downgrading back to 2010. So <laughs> maybe it's not so much like a Mac specific problem and more just an issue with, you know, more recent versions of office, but with the Mac version, I don't really think I have any choice now. So, I mean, both, both on my personal Mac and, um, on my work Mac, it's they're just part of like Office 365 accounts. So I'm just, you know, just running the the latest version of Office. And that's kind of what I'm stuck with. Yeah. Well, cool. It's it's very nice that you get to be a full-time Mac user and hopefully you get more into um I don't know the automation and the advanced user stuff. Like have you installed LaunchBar on the work Mac? Or um what's what's the other one? Uh, Alfred, Alfred, yeah, I we um, so we were we were big proponents, or you were a big proponent of that, and then consequently got me hooked on it in college. I think that was like one of the first apps, um, or applications, I guess, as we called them at the time. <laughs> um, on my that first MacBook Pro that I bought was Launch Bar, but um, I don't know, I, I and that maybe this is still the the basic Mac user that's speaking, and over time this will change. But um, I feel the spotlight is fine. Like it 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 does 
it does what I used to use LaunchBar for. I hmm, yeah, I would while you're doing this conversion, I would strongly recommend putting LaunchBar back into your workflow cuz yes, um Spotlight is fine for just finding apps, but LaunchBar does a lot more and it does it better. So I, I would before you get too comfortable with Spotlight as being the default, I would throw LaunchBar back into the mix. Okay. Where do I where do I put the dock? Huh? The not the that sorry, that was a bit of a hard segue, but the the just the Mac OS dock. Where do I put it? Oh, it's up to you. Um uh I always just do at the bottom but hidden. Oh yeah, okay. you can't leave the especially on a thirteen inch laptop, you cannot afford the screen real estate taken up by the dock. I should just and that's what I should I should just have it. Why do why do I have it showing all the time? Like on on my uh, iMac, um because it's 27 inches. I mean, yeah, sure, keep it there. But um, on a 13-inch laptop, no. That's And I think that's part of why launch bar is so important, is that when you lose the dock being visible all the time, it, it's a bit more valuable. Well, I, I mean, so this machine... So what's actually funny, too, is that the, the external monitor I have it hooked up to is exactly the same monitor I have here at home. Um, oh, the 25-inch Dell? The Oh, come on, 27-inch Dell, man. Um, is it? I think it's twenty five, man. Well, they they make a twenty five and a twenty seven. I have the twenty seven. Oh, oh, fancy pants. All right. Which further proves the point that I could just get a twenty seven inch iMac in here. But anyway, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just have the dock up all the time, which I guess on a twenty seven inch screen is fine. Yeah, I had it. I had it on the left for a while, but I, I I'm putting it back on the bottom now. Yeah, I tried being a, a uh, cause, uh, Jason Snell is a proponent of uh, dock on the side, and I, I, I don't love it. Yeah, it it starts to get a little. So, like, I, what I have been doing at work is using the laptop screen as like a second screen. Mm-hmm. So, having the dock like on the side of the main monitor, which is kind of like essentially in the middle of the two monitors is kind of weird so yeah i just moved it to the to the bottom and then here on my personal mac at home i just moved it back to the bottom too so well cool hopefully we'll check in soon and see and then maybe we'll get like um an update on how omnifocus and fantastical and all that stuff is kind of fitting into the workflow because yeah we haven't done like a productivity check-in in a while right and there's been other stuff like um, like mail mailplane, I've been using a little bit. Um, oh, that was the other one I wanted to talk about. Yeah, yeah, so I feel like that that kind of stuff. Maybe that's maybe we can come back to that when we do the check in because it's, it's mm-hmm. still kind of early days with that stuff. But yeah, there's I mean, there's been a lot more with that and kind of its integration with OmniFocus that I've been using some. And yeah, I think it's 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 early days and all that stuff. But yeah, we should we should circle back and kind of check in on all that stuff. And I think that the thing maybe that'll. Um, We'll see if it happens. Is like I could maybe see myself coming a lot more in alignment with you in terms of your feelings about the Mac and how important it is. Because maybe now that I'm going to become a lot more reliant on it, I'll kind of better understand where you're coming from with that stuff. Yeah, meet me and John Syracuse are in kind of this weird <laughs> cave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. And then uh, I don't want to keep making uh, putting this all on you in terms of doing all the talking, but I do have one other thing that I wanted to check on, on that was a big project for you because uh, I will probably be visiting this very soon. 
Um, what's the status of like your uh, home automation, specifically uh, Hue lights? How's that been? <clears throat> so I, I, I love it. I'm, I'm <laughs> been really just having a lot of fun with it in general in the in the new apartment. You know the <clears throat> the fun project over the the long weekend here um, was so with the Logitech hub, which we've talked about before. It you know mm-hmm. it, it hooks into the the Philips Hue hub as well, and so when you set up um, activities on your remote, you can not only control your home theater stuff, but you can also control your lights. So I, I created a, um, I called it an evening TV activity where it turns the TV on and does all the normal like TV stuff with turning on the sound bar and the TiVo, all that kind of stuff. But then it also dims the living room lights here and then turns off all the other lights in the apartment, which is pretty darn cool. Um, so yeah, that, that stuff, that stuff continues to be great. Okay. So I guess my specific questions and you actually generated a new one. Um, so what's the deal with the, um, the hue, the, with the wall mounted hue dimmer switches. And also you seemed, uh, I don't want to get too specific, but you said you were an extremely big fan of the motion sensing, uh, implementation you have in the bathroom. So how, how does that go? <laughs> um. Well, so yeah, so we can uh, we can start with the dimmer switches. So the dimmer switches are great. Um, you know, we've talked about again on the show about how particularly in older apartments and older homes with maybe older wiring, you know, even just having like regular dimmer lights can sometimes be difficult or maybe not even possible at all. Um so the dimming functionality actually has been one of the really added features that I didn't think about at all when we kind of did the whole smart light thing, but has ended up being a huge value add. But you know, the the bigger thing with the the switches, putting aside the dimming functionality, is, you know, you just don't want to always use, you know, your echo or your phone or whatever to control your lights. Like sometimes you just want to be able to, you know, press the button like you normally would. And so, you know, pretty early on when making the decision to do the whole smart light thing i also knew that you know i wanted to have just the ability to simply turn the light on and off just like you kind of normally would and there there are some really hacky slash probably not safe you know diy methods you can do to like replace your existing light switch with something but i didn't really feel comfortable doing any of that so you know the solution has been just to have these dimmer switches um um, kind of stuck to the wall either right above or right next to each of the traditional light switches which you know visually is maybe not the most um not the most elegant solution but it's it's the most it's the most functional and i th- i think it's it's important to it's important to have those i can't really imagine not not having those in each of the rooms where the, the smart lights are like i think that the thought of the thought of just again using just your phone or just your voice would be kind of weird yeah. So two quick follow-ups. So uh, how do they get powered? Are they rechargeable batteries? Are they watch batteries? What's the deal? So they're, 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 wa- they're watch batteries. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> we've had them for, you know, four months now. And if the, if the Hue app is to, believe, to be believed, all those batteries are still 100%. 
So what is the estimated lifespan of them? I don't know. I, I, I figured that would be your next question. And I, I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. But I, I assume, you know, years and years. But if they're making a connection to Wi-Fi, like, because the only reason why I bring that up is that uh, my Wi-Fi connected bathroom scale, which, if I would be believed, operates for like 20 seconds each day, like four AAA batteries have to get replaced like every three months. Yeah, no, this isn't anything like that. Well, um, but, but then how is it connecting to the bridge? What do you mean? Like, I'm just trying to think of like, how does a watch battery lo- Anyway, man, it doesn't matter. Well, I think, I mean, it's really only using power when you're pressing a button. And it just, you know, as soon as you press the button, it just sends a signal to the bridge. Because hmm. the bridge doesn't okay. really have to talk to it. It has to talk to the bridge. Oh, so maybe it's not even touching your Wi-Fi network. Well, no. Yeah, no. The So the, the, the Hue system, the the any of the accessories and the lights they're not connected to your wi-fi network they're just they're just connected to the the hub which also isn't connected to your wi-fi network it has to be hardwired yeah okay so like calling them yeah i guess actually calling them wi-fi bulbs is actually a little misleading but anyway and and, you know the 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 watch battery is super easily accessible and i think it's just a standard watch battery so it'd be easy to replace too when that time comes well, so that's my follow-up question. How, like, do you have to take it off the wall? And then if so, how do you remount it if you have to replace the battery? So the, um, well, actually one of the cool things about the the units are that they they also can be basically just used as like remotes. So they, they're mm-hmm. actually just held into the kind of the base by magnets and the base is what sticks to the wall. But you what? can just, you can just take the switch part off. And again, it, it basically then just looks and acts like a remote. And that's all just with magnets. That's brilliant. I know. I know. Wait, so, then why why do they sell the tap switch? Well, the tap switch came out before the dimmer switch. So the tap switch was almost like version why, one. Uh, well, so I think I, I think the Genesis... I guess why is, do they continue to sell it then? Because <laughs> well, this is cheaper yeah. and it seems like a billion times better. I mean, it, it is. It, it totally is. <laughs> and, it, and it's also got... Um, yeah, it has the same number of buttons as the tap switch. It's got four buttons. And actually, in a lot of ways, I think it's it's more functional because you can do long presses and short presses on each of those buttons. Whereas I think with the tap switch, you can just you just do a standard press. Yeah. Um I mean I, th- I think the Genesis again, I think the you know the 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 story arc of this is that I think Phillips's initial stance was, you know, hey, you don't you don't need a physical switch. That's the whole point of having these smart lights. But then they're like, oh, okay, well, we can see a need for this, I guess. And so they, they did the tap switch. But then people were, I think, again, like, well, that's that's not really what we want. Um, and then they came out with the dimmer switch. Got it. So again, I, I think the, the biggest the biggest downside is just visually, it's just it's just not it's not very elegant. And again, there are people who go down this weird path where they like take out their existing switch and then just like manually twist a couple of wires together to have mm. the light always turned on and then they just stick the you know the hue switch over the it, it i don't i haven't gotten in any of that and the problem is i i just don't have enough confidence that like the standards are hashed out enough where i'm actually going to physically modify my house yeah right so you know i think like when the time comes where like I buy a home and like really want to get into this stuff maybe that'll be a different conversation but for now like being in an apartment even though it looked a little janky, it makes sense just having them next to the standard light switch. But I would say that that's kind of the only downside to them. 
Um, but you know, we, and we haven't even gotten into all the other cool stuff. Like, you know, you can program it so that, you know, the first time you, you turn them on or the first time you press the on button, it'll just, it'll turn the lights back on to their last used state. And then you can press the button again and then it'll go, you can set it to go to like a different scene. Um, all kinds of cool stuff you can do with them. Cool. All right. I ordered two of those today, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Um, uh, and then what's the deal with the the motion sensing bathroom situation? So the, well, so the motion sensors. So we've got those in two rooms. So I guess we can start with the the simpler room, which is actually the closet. Um, and that's just, it's really straightforward. It's you know it, it's you walk in, it senses motion, it turns the light on. Um, you know, really great feature of the motion detector is that you can have the light turn on at different brightnesses depending on the time of day. So like in the evening, you can have it turn on to a, a much lower setting so that when you walk in the room, it's not, you know, overwhelming. Um, it also is smart enough to like in the middle of the day when there's already enough light in the room, like natural light in the room, it just won't turn the light on at all. So it kind of works exactly how you, how you would expect. And then, you know, like in the case of the closet, we have it set where after it doesn't detect motion for, I think we have it set for like two minutes, then the light just go, you know, just turns off. Um, but it does, it is smart where what it'll do is it'll actually dim itself first for about 15 seconds and then it'll turn itself off. So if, if you are still in the room, you can kind of move around, <laughs> wave your hand <laughs> and it'll, you know, come back on. So that, you know, that, that's pretty straightforward in the closet. Um, the bathroom gets, you know, a little more complicated where, you know, same idea in there. So you walk in, um, light turns on the, the, the main reason we wanted it in there and that, and that's, you know, the bathroom was the first place we put this thing was, you know, we wanted it to be like a smart nightlight where particularly if we had like guests over, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about fumbling for the light and it, you know, the light could just, you know, turn itself on. And it's really great to have that feature where the light will come on at a, you know, a much lower setting, like in the middle of the night, as opposed to like in the middle of the day. Cause there's, there's nothing worse than like getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and being like blinded by the regular light. So it's really nice to be able to, to have that and have that just all be automated. But the, then the problem is, <clears throat> you know, like I mentioned with the closet, we have it set to, to go off after two minutes of not detecting any activity. So where that becomes an issue in the bathroom is like when you're taking a shower, what I, you know, what we found pretty early on was that when you're in the shower, the motion detector wasn't detecting any movement. So, um, you know, one, one option we could have gone with was, well, we could set the timeout to be longer. So set it to be like 10 minutes or something, but then you're kind of like in this weird spot where, you know, every time you walk into the bathroom and every time you leave, the light's going to be on for like an extra eight minutes or whatever, which seemed kind of inefficient. So ultimately what we decided to do in there was have the motion sensor turn the light on when we, when we walked in, but then turn off the functionality where it would automatically turn itself off after a set amount of time. And so we just manually turn the bathroom light off. So you mean there's a, a third dimmer switch in there with an off button so we we have dimmer switches in every single room in the apartment <laughs> so i've got one in the closet one in the living room one in the hallway one in the bedroom one in the kitchen and one in the bathroom and actually so you know also we didn't get into this either with the dimmer switches but um 
The other great thing is our apartment is really weird where both in the hallway and in the kitchen, there are two sets of lights and they're, each light is controlled by a different switch, which are on opposite sides of the space. So like particularly in the kitchen, you walk in and the switch that you can control when you first walk in only controls the light near you. And then the far light is controlled by a switch all the way at the other end of the kitchen. So what's great now about the Philips Hue switch is that, you know, it can just control both of those lights when you first walk in. And same with the hallway. Okay. So just to, to summarize, your bathroom solution is motion sensor, but it doesn't have a timeout. And then as you leave the bathroom, you just press the off button on a on the dimmer switch. That's right. Okay. That yeah, I mean it's not perfect, but no, that that's functionally that does it. That's good. And that still has the same like with that type of setup, you can still do the configurability where you can say like between ten PM and six AM like be super dim yeah ex exactly yep okay yeah all right when i'm sending this up i'll probably have some questions but yeah i mean it's 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 fairly intuitive um it, even just with like the the stock um the stock hue app but then you know the other thing that i would really recommend is let me look at the name here i connect hue um just it, it unlocks a lot of additional functionality, particularly with the um, the dimmer switches, which I, which will make more sense once you actually have them. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's fun, and I you know I think maybe we'll we're, you know run a little long and get some other things to get through, but I think it'll be worthwhile revisiting that Logitech Hub too, slash convincing you to get one because man that that thing is just it's the best, and like the. The Philips Hue integration, which we mentioned earlier, is awesome. And then the, you know, the Echo integration is super cool. Especially, well, let, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, well, actually, one final question. Uh, what's your current satisfaction with the Canary? It's it's fine. Um, it, it does this annoying thing where, you know, just sometimes it, it it doesn't detect when like when one of us gets home. And so it, it sends an alert saying that it's detected, you know, motion. Um, but you know, I guess I would rather have a home security system that errs on the side of caution as opposed to missing things. And for the video recording, does it, it, does it only support live video if you don't pay or is there any sort of free period for the DVR you, part? You get, you get, it's either like a free, it's like a free 24 hours or even maybe like a free few days or something. Okay. All right, cool. So the reason I'm asking all these things is uh, in the next week I will be moving and I'm, I've kind of set aside a, a healthy budget for kind of uh, allowing myself to indulge myself with uh, the home automation stuff and just kind of getting some new things. So um, I have some old Hue equipment that I'll be using, but yeah, I'm probably gonna be looking at like a Nest Cam or a Canary or that kind of stuff too. So this will be a fun couple of weeks. Yeah, the the, the smart home stuff is cool and yeah. get, a, get, a, get a lot check hub, do it. I don't understand what it does, though. Do I have to buy the three hundred dollar remote with it? I mean, <laughs> if you if you want to be if you want to be completely happy with it, yeah. Well, but I've never been completely happy with any Logitech Harmony product because it's never that great. the The Elite is pretty good, but to be honest, it that part of it's nice, but it's the it's the Echo integration. Um, but I don't that really. Makes but it. you. But Hue already integrates with Echo. I don't see what I'm getting out of it. Well, but no, I mean, I mean, just for um, 
starting activities, Logitech activities with, with the Echo. Like turning your TV on with your voice is great. And it's even better to turn off the TV with your voice. That's super convenient. So it, can, I, can I link the Hue motion sensors to turn on my TV? Oh, man. I'm sure, I'm sure somebody's got some IFTTT <laughs> formula out there that could, that could do that. Because that would kind of be cool. Like, because if it knew, like, if I could say between like five and nine p.m., like when I'm getting home from work, and it would automatically turn on like what, like whatever uh, news I wanted, and just everything goes per- like that's that's kind of cool. Well, I mean, I guess I guess what would be complicated about that is that that would then have the Philips Hue bridge making sort of like an outbound signal to other devices as opposed to accepting commands from other devices so it's kind of like the opposite direction so i don't i don't really know i i have to imagine somebody's hacked that together yeah that might be too fiddly so so anyway the only other part about moving is and this is something that you've dealt with recently and that i wanted some feedback on is as we're both in our uh soon to be expiring uh 20s uh entering the 30s uh what's I've, I think I've outgrown Ikea and, and, and this kind of stuff. And, and I wanted some opinions here. So, and this kind of seems like one of those things that every like uh late stage millennial like faces where like there becomes a point where you have to show that you're an adult through like your choices in terms of like what you put in your home. And you recently went through like a big remodel and like um, redes- uh, reorganization of your home. So how do you decide this kind of stuff? Like, what what did you think was an acceptable budget for certain things? Um, and yeah, just why why did you decide on what you decided? Um, yeah, I I, th- I think I'm I'm right there with you. Where I will forever have a a soft spot in my heart for IKEA, and and you know, and very much still do. But it, there there comes a point where. I mean, the reality with IKEA, generally speaking, is that when you walk into a space which is predominantly furnitured, is that, is that, a, is that a way to use that word? No, furnished. Uh, furnished, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> with IKEA stuff, <laughs> um, you can tell. There's just there's there's just a style of IKEA furniture, and I'm this is not, I'm not in any way knocking that. But it just kind of there, there's a certain aesthetic to it, and so you, there's comes a point in your life where you kind of want to move beyond that. Because as as nice as nice as IKEA stuff is, when you compare a you know non IKEA room to an IKEA room, you can you can really tell the difference. Um, so I think you know the strategy in the new apartment has been still using IKEA for certain things, right? So we have like an IKEA bed frame for example, which is really nice. Um, we have a bunch of Ikea um, storage units in both both closets, um, things like that. So still kind of, you know, strategically using Ikea, but just not for, um, not for the main, like not for the main furniture, like a desk or, you know, coffee table or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, for that stuff, you know, I think what we've been focused on or in, in kind of what I would say is general advice is wait for stuff to go on sale because man, furniture is just always on sale. Like 
you have to be a huge sucker to pay full price for furniture. Like across the board, West Elm, Macy's, Pottery Barn, I mean, literally, you know, whatever, you name it. Well, the, I don't make Pottery Barn kind of money. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't we don't we don't either. <laughs> but just using it as an example. Um you know, um wait for that stuff to go on sale. Um and then the other thing that we've done is um and this is, you know, you this is where you have to <laughs> have the the necessary skill and and certainly the amount of time that it would take. But, you know, for example, our desk here is just from Craigslist. It's an old antique desk that, um, you know, we bought and then fixed up. So, you know, painted it, you know, put a wax finish on the top of it um, and got that for <laughs> a really, really good deal. Um, and then for the um, our media table and our coffee table, we actually had gone to an antique fair and um had met a um woodmaker and actually had that stuff custom made which actually ended up being actually way way cheaper than even like west elm so you know just kind of things like that you just kind of you know I, the, the nice thing with ikea it just or at least it was always the thing that i really appreciated with ikea is that you can move in somewhere you can make like one trip to ikea maybe two trips to ikea and have your entire place furnished just like that and that's super appealing and you can get some delicious swedish meatballs in the process so i think this becomes my problem which is like i would want to rush into into a space and and want it to feel like home as soon as humanly so possible. that's yeah that's that's exactly how i am too um but you know that you know that was not that was not the strategy coming into this new place and we i mean to to be honest i mean so you came over so you came over about the middle of December, right? When we had our little thing and, you know, we had moved in beginning of October and we had literally finished pretty significant parts of the apartment like that same day that you came over. <laughs> so it was, you know, about a two and a half month process or so, which, you know, at times, you know, that, you know, that sort of would be challenging, but you know, the thing I would say is that at the end of the day, the apartment is way, way nicer and we have way nicer stuff than than I ever could have gotten from Ikea. Well, no, I like it. Ikea is being ruled out. But uh, well, and then this leads to another thing, which is like, I really enjoy my Ikea desk and I don't think it necessarily looks like it came from Ikea. I think, yeah, it's no, not... I think I think Ikea desks are fine. I think if you stuck if you stuck with an Ikea desk, that'd be fine. Yeah, but the the couch and the coffee table and like I'm still gonna wall mount a TV and that kind of stuff. But whatever media console or whatever whatever you'd call that type of thing, that I never know what to call TV. ours. Cause our, yeah, our TV's wall mounted. I could call it like a media table or a console table, I guess. But the thing is, like, I would potentially want to like um, make that a combined bookshelf too, and I don't know where I would get that. Once that that's when I that's where I'm saying having things custom made is a really good way to go. And it takes time, right? I mean, like our our console table, I think took six weeks, and that and that was sort of like a a rushed, you know, kind of situation. Like normally, it would have been like eight to ten weeks. So it's you know that that stuff takes time, but um, but it's it's really worth it. And you know, again, at least at least in our case, I mean, and you know, I we we found the right person, but 
you know, for what we got, it was probably less than half the price of, of something like a West Elm and, and probably like a third to a fourth of the price of something from like Pottery Barn or Pier One or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So I'll take that under advisement. But um, in your situation, you're you are not the you are not the uh, key tastemaker, or well, like so that curator. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I I would be lucky to be classified as the assistant. Yeah, so I I'm in that I'm in that very lucky situation. And would you say your space had like an overall theme, or not really? Um, I'm I'm told that it's it's transitional. Is the is the the design term for it? Which is, I think, in in general, the way to describe that would be, you know, a mix of modern and um, more traditional. Hmm. I mean, you you've been here. I know you tell me. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe, maybe next episode we'll need uh, your chief design consultant to to guest star. Yeah, something. perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, it'll be a work in progress, and. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm gonna. It, this is gonna be my one indulgence since I haven't done any major uh, home shopping in like six years. So yeah, yeah. The the smart home stuff is is a lot of fun. So d- do some of that to kind of distract yourself from the other less fun stuff you have to buy and do. And buy man, buy an OLED TV. What a great what a great time to do that. Well, hold on. We're, we're not going to get specific about this, but I've already laid out my uh, terms and conditions for this, and I'm going to impose them on you. So therefore, you need to go buy a TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just I one one of the one of the podcast hosts that I that I really like from from a from a gaming podcast that I listen to. He he just moved too and and bought one of the bought that LG 55 inch OLED TV OLED. I guess we can say. That everybody loves, and he he got it for I think about fifteen hundred, and just can't say enough good things about it. The only well, I I, I want to discuss something, but you can't use this as an excuse not to buy the TV. But I was really on the edge of doing it, and it sounds like there might be like a motion blur issue with it, and I'm not sure if you've heard about it. I don't know. Just what because it's only a sixty hertz TV, people like some. Something about if you're watching a movie which is like 24p or like the 24 frames a minute or whatever most movies are, apparently there's some like judder issue. I think people always complain about that. I think I think motion I think motion motion blur I think is always one of those things that unless unless it's like some crazy high end TV, I think people always complain about. I mean, maybe maybe it is truly worse on that TV. I don't know, but um. I mean, I think I think that has in general been a limitation of some of these like lower kind of entry level 4K TVs is that they just they don't have quite as high a refresh rates. Like like this Samsung that we have doesn't even have a um, that 120 hertz mode that got super popular for a while on 1080p TVs. Oh, the one where everything looks like the handycam. <laughs> yeah, like that feature, which you know I'm not I'm not sad not to have, but that feature is only available on the like the samsung super ultra hd tvs mm. um whereas mm. we just have yeah. the uhd tv like a bunch of suckers right yeah. right so i think i think yeah. i think that's anyway i think that stuff is all kind of related to that yeah, like that motion 
that motion stuff. So I, I think with some of the the more basic 4K TVs, that that is a bit of an issue. Got it. Okay, well, let me know uh, when you report back because I think it's in stock at Amazon and Best Buy and B and H. So let me know next week when you've got yours mounted <laughs> and, and how it turns out. Uh huh. Uh huh. Think of the black levels. No, I, I'm I'm aware, and I've I've talked on the show already about how nice HDR is, and I'm I'm told that HDR on, a, on an OLED TV is even better. So no, I'm you're ta- I'm, you're ta- I'm but, all in on well, the no, idea. but you're ta- you're talking to the wrong person though. You have to you have to communicate to your to your design lead about how how much nicer black levels will positively affect a transitional d- I decor. Think, I think it's fair to say that if if this decision were to be made, this would be a uh, this would not be a fifty fifty purchase. <laughs> this would this would have to this would have to come out of out of my budget, I think. And that and I think that's I Rightfully think that's so. pretty reasonable. Because to to be honest, even this TV that that we have currently, we didn't necessarily have. We could have gotten a cheaper TV. Let's let's be real. Four K four K was not a it was not a necessity. But the current TV you got it it was not. I would not classify that as an expensive TV. No, but we could have we could have spent half the price if we really wanted to. Yeah, we could have gotten a perfectly reasonable 1080p 55 inch TV for yeah about half the price probably. Yeah, maybe. So anyway, all right. Well, there's there's a decent amount of news, but um, of what we have coming up next, what um. What are you itching to talk about now? I think the um, I think the WWDC and Apple Park stuff is kind of interesting and is maybe of the remaining topics we have maybe the most timely. Sure. So yeah, so WWDC for the past, I mean, as long as we've been in the Bay Area, so at least for um, the past seven years, but I think since like the mid two thousands, I think it's been since two thousand two. Okay. Yeah, so it's been in San Francisco, and that's been, and apparently that was like Steve's job's, uh, his vision for like the worldwide developer conference that like people descend on San Francisco to talk about Apple stuff. Um, so yeah, but apparently back in its history, per Apple historian Jason Snell, for a long time it was actually uh, down in San Jose, uh, much closer to the Apple campus, and this year it's actually uh, returning there um, to the McInerney Center. Is that what it is? That sounds right. It's again one of those um <laughs> one of those places I've read a bunch of times but have never had to say out loud. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's an interesting change. That's gonna that's I'm sure has to be cheaper for Apple and um it has some other benefits like being closer to the Apple campus, potentially allowing them to have more um resources on hand and makes it easier to attend sessions and that kind of stuff. It sounds from like what we've heard is that it's not going to necessarily like overcome the space constraints that maybe Moscone West had. So even though it's going to be a bigger area or a bigger um, capacity, the actual attendee count will probably be the same. Yeah, I mean that's 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 what it's. I think that's what Schiller indicated to the interviews that he that he had given. Um, I mean, it's it's just going to be interesting in terms of the 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 vibe around the show, which, you know, at, at, at these conferences, um, I think actually probably more, more than ever as information has just become so much easier to, you know, access and, um, 
I mean, WWC is a perfect example of that, where all <clears throat> all of the actual sessions are uh, made available online in streaming video format, um, either concurrent with the show or right after the show. But you know, even for non-developers, yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, but you know, so I think you know because of because of that shift, you know, and WWDC is not the only conference to move in that direction. It's sort of the <clears throat> the environment around the conference that people get the most value out of. And, you know, I mean, in fact, you know, because of the limited capacity of WWDC and the lottery system and everything, it, you know, a lot, a lot of people now just go to the event, even if they don't have passes. So they're, they're just there to, to be around the event. And so that's, you know, that's going to be the biggest change between the event being in San Francisco and San Jose. And, you know, I'm actually, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a San Jose hater. I, I actually, I like, I like that area quite a bit, you know, <clears throat> as a, as a Sharks fan who goes down to the SAP center on occasion, you know, I, I think that area is really nice. Um, but you know, it's, it's not San Francisco. It's, it's, it's very, it's very different than San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco is unique in about 18,000 different ways. And, you know, I think it's, you know, one of the best cities in the world. So it's kind of hard to, hard to, hard to compete with. And, you know, San Jose is, is not, is not going to compete with that, but, but it's, it's perfectly fine. And I, I think people, people have a, you know, they'll have a fine time. Yeah. I mean, so that, that, yeah, there's a lot that goes with that. So I mean, like San Jose is more populous than San Francisco, but no, I, I agree that um, it being there, like carries more weight and it's just, it's, it's a little bit different, but in terms of yeah, like the limitation of WWDC only like accommodating like five thousand developers or something like that, like the whole um, like cottage industry of like uh, concurrent alternate conferences that go around WWDC, like it, it'll be interesting and in, in, like how that turns out. Like I mean, because while it not being in San Francisco might negatively affect attendance from locals a little bit, since I mean San Francisco is like a big tech hub and that kind of thing. Um, like for people coming from other locations and aren't in the Bay Area, uh, San Jose will be a heck of a lot cheaper. So potentially the attendance and participation on that kind of stuff could go up. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Um, and on upgrade, I believe they also cited that where it, it's, it's a big uh, question mark as to what's going to happen with the keynote. Because that is one of the things that was part of WWDC, but didn't actually take place at uh, Moscone West for capacity constraints. So yeah, it'll be interesting as uh, as to what happens there. Yeah, and you know, one of the, I've actually I've I thought about um, writing into Upgrade, and maybe I maybe I still won't. Um, but you know, one of the the things that Jason had sort of speculated about was you know maybe they could use SAP Center in some capacity, which is the the big arena. That's, you know, probably it's certainly less than a mile away from the convention center, maybe about a half mile from the convention center. Um, but the problem with that is that the um, the NHL playoffs are, are going on at that time. And, you know, there's the Sharks might not make it that far. And so it might not be an issue. But but you wouldn't know that until too close to the event. So I don't really think that they could count on having the conference there unless i mean un unless they already had it figured out where i don't really even know i actually don't even really know how they would have the schedule already figured out but um so i know that that, that could be potentially one complication 
And then with, you know, that kind of, I guess, you know, again, parlays into, you know, the other thing that we wanted to touch on, which is, you know, there's been some speculation about, well, maybe Apple will use their new campus in subcapacity since it's going to be so close to the event. But, you know, the, the press release today, which came out with the official name, Apple Park, and talked a little bit about like the, the auditorium, um, you know, it doesn't sound like that stuff's going to be ready in time for the conference. And if, if it's just my gut feeling, I don't think Apple, even if it was ready, would want just a bunch of just thousands of random people descending on it that early into its lifespan. Yeah, I don't think so either. And and, and maybe this was already out there. It, I mean, it probably was with the because the plans are public and everything. But the you know the auditorium is only a thousand person capacity, so that's that's not a solution for a keynote or really anything related to WWDC. And so, yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to put everybody in the, you know, the park section in the middle of campus. But I think that's, you know, that's what they, I think that's the part that they've indicated is that's, that's not going to be ready in, in April. I mean, April is just kind of when they're going to start moving employees over. So presumably some of the main sections of the actual office space will be complete. But I think all that, like, landscaping and all that that's usually kind of like the last stuff you do and they indicated in the press release today you know that stuff's going to continue to be worked on for out you know throughout the majority of the rest of the calendar year so so yeah i don't i don't i don't really see i don't really see apple park you know being used and again i don't i'm not really sure they can count on sap center being available so so yeah i don't know um hard to hard to say what else they'll do but there's there's also um there's the where the san jose earthquake play which is the the mls team in the area they they just had a a brand new stadium open a couple of years ago forget forget what that's called now is that the avaya center i think that's yeah i was gonna say that i think that's right or at least that's what it was originally called i feel like it maybe it changed names at some point even though it's so new but Anyway, whatever it's called, it it's pretty close by. It it's right right by the airport, so it's it'd be a bit of a drive from the convention center, but not not too bad. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know. We'll we'll see. Yeah, they'll 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 figure it out. Um, yeah, and the the Apple Park thing. I mean, I'm I'm sure it's gonna be very interesting. Uh, do we know? Have they specified like which teams stay where? Because I know they were saying like that as part of this, they wanted to organize like departments like together where like it's easier for like the iCloud people to collaborate with the iOS people. Like who gets the fancy new office? Do you know? I don't think anybody knows. Um, You know, we know that Apple is so big now that they're intending on continuing to use their old office space. And I, I, I think the plan is to really have that office space be essentially full still, as well as completely, you know, fill in this new campus. So I don't even mm-hmm. know, I don't even know what that means for current conditions. Um, if if Infinite Loop is just super overcrowded or what, but um, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, you know, you would have to assume like the, the the executive team will be at the new campus. Um, I think it's a fair guess that like Johnny Ives' team will be at the new campus. Um. The the mission the mission critical folks will, will will probably be at the new campus. I maybe the iPhone team, the Apple TV team, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not the Apple TV team. No, I I don't I don't know. I'm I'm just kind of just joking now. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. 
I would, you know, I would have to imagine, I mean, it sounds, it sounds kind of petty, but so I, I can tell so at my old job, uh, we had this a little bit where we were in a building where there were two different office space towers that were connected by a single lobby. And the, the tower that we were originally in was a much older tower and the office space was, was just not as, not as nice. Whereas the the second tower that shared this lobby was was essentially brand new, really nice, really modern, and um, you know the as the company grew, we eventually acquired a few floors in the other the other newer tower, and then there was a period of time where my team was still in the old tower, while a bunch of the other teams got to move to this brand new fancy tower. And it's it kind of it kind of sucks. Like it's kind of you kind of feel a little a little left out and a little forgotten. And in our case, all you had to do was take the elevator down to the lobby, walk across, and take an elevator back up. I mean, this is with in Apple's case. I don't know exactly how far Apple Park is away from Infinite Loop. It's not not that far, but it's you know it's a it's a drive, right? It's not some, not something you can walk. So. I don't know. It, it again it sounds kind of petty, but I think I think it does create a bit of tension between folks who are still stuck in the old office space versus folks who get to move into the new space. Yeah. No, I think that's definitely true. Um I think that that's that issue scales into the super um tiny things in an office or a company into the into the big stuff like where you work. Um what was I say? And then I think this does solve one problem is like that earlier reporting about this says that like Apple also owns like a ton of just random office space inside of Cupertino and neighboring cities. So as people move over to Apple Park, a lot of those teams that have been scattered outside of one infinite loop can uh, at least move to some more formal um, and established like company headquarters. Right. I, I, I think it was... Gruber who's has said this in the past and I, I don't know if he was just speculating or if he did have some info but the way that it was phrased was that Apple's not giving up any space in this move which would imply that you know maybe some teams are going to be able to be consolidated in a single space now but you know other teams I think will still be spread out hmm. so well it'll be interesting and I don't know we've got to go find somebody to give us a tour I thought, um, I, th- I think I think this was credited to Syracuse, who's brought this up, which I th- I think is just a really interesting point, which is, so you know, Apple is out of the standalone display business now, at least you know for a while. So, oh yeah. So what is what does that mean for external displays inside this new campus? Like, I think it means that everybody just has IMAX, honestly. And so I, yeah, maybe, but you know, I, at least, I mean, maybe Apple isn't like this, but I mean, I, I can just attest to, you know, the, the, the three jobs I've had now since, you know, post-college, which I would, you know, consider sort of probably somewhat similar to Apple in terms of the industry and obviously location, like you're constantly up and around, like going to meetings and, you know, like I can't imagine working primarily on a desktop what i think you're forgetting though is that the ipad is better than a computer and it's also the (laughs) ultimate work machine so therefore that's that's the solution i but i don't 
<laughs> That's what the marketing says. I mean, I just I, to me, I would have to imagine that for most people at Apple, a MacBook Pro makes way more sense than an iMac. But if that's the if that's the case, I mean, is this new office just going to have rows and rows of these, you know, LG monitors that can't be used within eight feet of a Wi-Fi router? I mean, I just I don't know. And even you know, Wi-Fi router joke aside, because it sounds like they're they're fixing that, it just doesn't doesn't seem right that you're just going to see like rows and rows of these LG monitors set up. That seems that just doesn't. That's weird. Yeah, and in all seriousness, I that. That that is a very very interesting observation and a weird problem that I'm hmm. I don't know yeah I'll, it'll be very interesting when we see kind of like the first press tours and that kind of stuff of how that gets how that gets handled unless you know like maybe I don't know like maybe one thought um, I don't know if this is an original thought but I I haven't heard this around is. You know, maybe these new rumored IMAX in the spring or sometime this year, maybe they'll bring back like target display or target mode functionality. Am I incorrect? And st- I th- could have sworn the f- current 5K iMac already does that. It just doesn't do it at 5K. No, mm-mm. you can't. My understanding is that you cannot use the new iMac as a, dis- a standalone display for another machine. Got it. It's been a it's, it's been a primary reason why I haven't gotten one. Um, oh, for the Windows machine, right? Mm-hmm. But I would presume that with USB C, the bandwidth problems, which again, I'm I'm guessing that's been the reason why Apple hasn't made that option available, is because there just really aren't the there haven't historically been the ports to to, to run a 5K display. I assume that with USB C, that's that's been largely overcome so maybe if the new iMac has USB-C you'd be able to to use that as a as a display again but I don't know yeah we'll see all right so we're running long so I have let's let's round this out a little bit with have you downloaded Overcast 3 yet I have yeah Okay, so I'm a Pocket Cast guy. So tell tell me what how the new upgrade fares. Um, you know, to to riff on Gruber's thoughts again, you know, he I thought summarized it pretty well in his piece, which is, you know, if you're a light Overcast user, you at first blush wouldn't even necessarily know there was a lot new. I mean, you would certainly see some of the UI elements have changed, but overall you wouldn't say it was a complete redesign but it, you know as as a as a more power user you it, it is a big change um i think marco himself sort of describes it as a a card like interface where um essentially like his premise behind the redesign was i think he said like 60 70% of his support questions related to features that the app already had which just weren't immediately obvious which has been sort of a criticism since ios 7 which is the era that this app comes from which is you have a lot of ui elements that are just sort of hidden and you have to rely on the user to know to long press or to swipe right or swipe left or swipe up from the bottom or do some other type of action that there isn't any icon or any other immediate obvious way to find out. And so, you know, Overcast 3 essentially says, well, 
let's put everything out on the table and every option, every selection you can make is there's a UI element for. Um, and what that kind of what that translates into now is when you're in a playlist and you tap on an episode, whereas before that would just immediately start playing the episode and then kind of any other functions with resorting the playlist or deleting the episode or anything like that, you'd have to, again, swipe left or whatever the command was. But now you tap on the episode and you've got this little menu bar type thing that comes underneath the episode that gives you the option of playing or of deleting or of sharing or putting into a new playlist or whatever. And then when you're actually inside of an episode, you used to have to swipe I guess so down to up to get to like the show notes and things like that. But now, again, with the card metaphor, it's more left to right. And there are actually little icons that indicate where if you swipe to the right, you get to the show notes. If you swipe to the left, you get to um, the settings. So like the smart speed and voice boost and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, oh, I mean, overall it, it's a, it's a nice update. It, it definitely takes some, some getting used to, but, um, but overall is a, a solid update. Okay. Yeah. Like from, uh, I, I downloaded it again to, I give every major revision another shot and, um, it seems better in a lot of ways. Um, it still uses that weird, ugly font, but if you put it in dark mode, um, it uses just a standard system, San Francisco font. Um, it looks like it's taken some cues from Pocket Cast and maybe some other apps, um, and it does in a lot of ways looks very, very, very similar to the to the music app um, inside of iOS 10. So, yeah, it seems cleaner overall, but it still doesn't have like um, a desktop Mac app or a web component that makes it um, functional for me. But as as a hardcore, very very frequent podcast listener, you think it's a worthwhile upgrade. Oh yeah, I, I I totally do. Um, I think I think it's 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 really nice. It's really really well thought out. Um, really nice looking. The only, the only thing I actually don't like is is the new icon. I think it just uh, there's just something a little off about it. Hmm. I I would I would say the opposite. Just because the old one was it looked um, it looked like puffy. Sort of, and it looked a little cartoonish. Where this one looks much more standard and and flat, and seems to mix better with iOS ten. I don't know. I, I like when I compare it to the rest of the icons on my home screen. I just there's something just a little off about it. Like the colors are a little washed out. It's a it's a little Androidy. I don't know. Hmm. I don't see it, but. Yeah, I guess an app an app that you rely on for years. Any any minor change? Yeah, they probably it's probably that's, a little bit striking. That's probably that's probably all it is. But yeah, and that in the grand scheme of things, not super important. Um, was hoping that maybe this would fix the issue where iOS seems to kill Overcast super fast and it's hard to resume playback. But nope, that doesn't seem to to be fixed. Yeah. Uh, the one other big thing about this is, um, are you an Overcast Premium subscriber or whatever it's called? Yeah, I am. Okay, so the new ad model is not affecting you at no, all, No, right? yeah, yeah. Like, in fact, yeah, I left out probably the biggest part of it because, yeah, it doesn't affect me. But, yeah, they, he's gone to to an ad-based model. And, you know, based on some of the screenshots, the ads seem to be pretty unobtrusive and overall not not a big deal. But, but yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a premium subscriber, so... 
Well, so from uh, from my understanding, it, he already had incorporated Google Ads for a while, just because like the patronage model wasn't really panning out past like the initial like enthusiasm of like the core Apple, like the probably the people that actually listen to his own podcast. So he was just doing like Google AdSense ads, but he's actually taken all that stuff in house for Overcast three. And the one cool notable part about that I want to talk about was that you can actually uh, see ads for podcasts inside of the podcast directory, which seems insanely logical. Although I don't know if a third party podcast client will necessarily get a lot of sponsors, but I think it's a really fascinating idea. And it's like the most logical form of in-app advertising I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I actually didn't, I didn't even know that he had integrated the Google AdSense stuff again, because well, I don't know if it was AdSense, but whatever Google, you know, integration he had, um, I didn't even know that was in there. Cause I just, I just have never seen ads, but, um, but yeah, it, it, I think it, it is an, it's an interesting idea. And I think, um, the kind of power of advertising within podcasts has yet to be fully unlocked not just within episodes but yeah within like what you mentioned with like the directory and things i think there's a lot of a lot of interesting things that could be done there all right and we're running along so last thing uh pods as a term for podcast episodes yay or nay (laughs) i i'm i'm in it i'm in for it i like it thumbs down okay i think um so bill simmons uses this a lot and I, i i like i like the way he uses it is he the originator of it? He might be. Or, or I first it, heard about it from the from the five thirty eight guys, but yeah, hmm. and I think Sim- Simmons was using it before the five thirty eight guys. I think I don't know if he necessarily came up with it, but if he didn't invent it, he was at least one of the early ones. Okay, strongly disagree, but that seems <laughs> to be the theme of of this entire series. Sure. So it's okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, picks of the week. Yeah. Um, so mine is an easy one. This this go around. It is the New York Times's new podcast called The Daily, which I'm I'm pretty sure you're a subscriber of now too, right? Mm-hmm. So this this just started a couple of weeks ago. Um, so as the name implies, it is a daily podcast, Monday through Friday. In their initial pitch, and I I think I still hear them refer to this. They refer to it as a 15 minute per day podcast, although. Not a single episode has been 15 minutes or less so far. They've all been longer than that. Not by not by a lot. Um, more in the like kind of 20 minute range. Um, but it is just a fantastic show. It's you know, I know I'm giving them a hard time about the, the time thing, but it, but in all seriousness, it's very concise. It's extremely well produced. It kind of ha- has a kind of NPR kind of vibe to it, just with the way that music is integrated and sound clips are are thrown in. The, the production value is just kind of off the charts. And yeah, I mean, it essentially sort of takes like the main headline of the day or kind of like of the previous day, but then sort of just kind of goes a step beyond just the headline and, and sort of really kind of dives in dives into the topic a little bit, gives some additional background and some additional context that maybe some of the mainstream stories are not really picking up. Um, overall, yeah, just a, a really cool way to to kind of start the day. Yeah. 
It's really good. And yeah, it's it's usually it's it's not necessarily going to be twenty minutes on a single topic. It's usually like ten minutes on their big meaty topic, which usually involves interviewing uh, one or two experts on the subject, which makes it uh, a bit uh, more interesting to read uh, or sorry to listen to. And then um, there's just uh, like kind of like a grab bag mix of uh, the other remaining stories. Yeah, so no, but it's fantastic. It's it's joined marketplace as kind of my two daily listens to keep me up-to-date and informed on things. So no, great recommendation. So my pick of the week is a very uh, niche utility uh, that anybody would ever want to use, but um, it wins for a couple of reasons. So this is a feature <laughs> that I think you so know I, the obvious so one. So I know the obvious one, uh-huh. <laughs> so this is this looks like an app that probably hasn't been updated in forever, because why, why would it? But apparently I haven't had to do this in like seven years, but earlier, um, about a week ago, I had to do something that I thought OS 10 supported natively, but maybe I'm thinking of um, OS 9 or uh, Windows, where you can print a document, but if you want to make it large, you can split it up so that it, like, let's say it's like two sheets of paper by um, four sheets of paper. And I couldn't find anything that did it until I found this app called Split Print. It's $6 and it does the job perfectly well. Um, but the main reason it wins at life <laughs> is that uh, the icon for it is a blown up picture of a corgi, and um, it and I like that the icon explains what it does, like with no words. Right. Like if you just saw that and you thought like this is an, this is a utility for printers, what does it do? It makes corgis bigger. Uh huh. Yeah. So <laughs> that's that's my pick of the week. I have another one that actually I want to devote more time to, so I'll save it for next week. But it involves um, the picture of Lightroom that you saw that I sent earlier. Ah, but that's yes. that's going to be okay. So that that'll be for next week. No, I actually I have I have something too that I that I thought was maybe a little bit too long for a pick of the week that I thought about making a pick of the week. So maybe yeah, maybe we'll do that next week. Yeah, we'll spare people because this, this has turned into a very epic show, but. Um, can you, I mean, you don't need to, if if you don't want to, but can you say what the project was that you needed this for? This does seem like a, even for you, a very kind of niche thing. Oh no, it's just a work thing where I need something that, that was like poster sized. Yeah. I have to, this is only tangentially related to this, but, um, actually and it, it nicely relates to our San Jose topic. So I went, went to a Sharks game last week and there's a, there's a brand new Marriott hotel that just opened up down the street. So also just down the street from the convention center. And, uh, I've driven by it a few times, um, as they've been building it out and you can see from the street, there's this kind of lobby bar area. And one of the things that really caught my eye a couple of months back was that they had put what I thought at the time was this massive TV, just like biggest TV I've ever seen on one of the far walls. But then this last week was the first time we were down there after this place had opened. And so that TV was on. And so I was really excited to like walk by it and see it. <laughs> Turns out it was like six individual TVs, you know, all set up next to each other, which was super disappointing. That's, that's what this, that that's what this image reminded me of. Have you ever been to the Exploratorium? Uh-huh, yeah. Since it reopened in the Embarcadero. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Have you been to, like, the, the marine, like, research lab or, like, the um like the upstairs, like, research portion? When we went, I think we spent just a brief amount of time up there. So they have something similar where it's, like, 10 TVs just showing, like, uh, really cool maps, but it's all, like, they have incredibly tiny bezels where it kind of looks like just one gigantic TV. 
or like display. Like I don't know. I think that's really cool. Yeah, this 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 hotel one I'm talking about though didn't have tiny little bezels. Oh yeah, because like the other one it was like maybe like an eighth of an inch. Oh yeah, for the no, bezel. no, no, yeah, no. This this wasn't like that. Oh yeah, that seems. Yeah. It just was. It just was disappointing because I kept seeing that thing and being like, "Man, like that's got to be like a 200 inch TV. Like that's crazy. <laughs> I probably would have heard about this. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of. That's actually yeah. It's kind of what I thought. But, um, anyways, uh, split print. Great, great pick of the week. <laughs> yes, it's a cute dog. It is. It's a cute dog. It's a. It's a pretty darn cute dog. Yeah, twelve out of ten. 